Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, May 6th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The World Health Organization says COVID is no longer a global health emergency. The leader of Russia's Wagner Group says he'll withdraw his forces from Bakhmut. Eight are killed in Serbia's second mass shooting in two days. Rochelle Walensky announces plans to step down as the CDC's director. The U.S. unemployment rate hits a 53-year low. Biden signs an executive order to levy sanctions related to the Sudan crisis. Canada summons the Chinese ambassador over alleged legislator harassment. New York and California announce a workplace discrimination probe into the NFL. Indigenous leaders demand an apology and reparations from King Charles. And Italy's Napoli wins its first Serie A title in 33 years. In our top story, the World Health Organization ends the COVID global health emergency. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Guardian, Reuters, Associated Press, CNN and Al Jazeera. The World Health Organization downgraded the threat level of COVID on Friday, saying it no longer qualifies as a global emergency. The WHO first gave COVID the alert level its highest designation on January 30th, 2020, and its panel has continued to apply the label at meetings held every three months. WHO Director General Tedros Adnan Ghebreyesus said that yesterday the committee held its 15th meeting and recommended ending the public health emergency. The change in status for COVID came more than three years after its original declaration, with more than 6.9 million people dying from the virus. The change, the organization says, reflects widespread vaccination efforts, the availability of better treatments, and population immunity from prior infections. Tedros also underlined how although COVID is no longer a global emergency, quote, that does not mean COVID-19 is over as a global health threat, warning that it is still possible that new variants could emerge. He also noted that while the official COVID death toll was close to 7 million, the real figure was estimated to be 20 million or more. A public health emergency is an agreement between countries that follow WHO's recommendations for managing the emergency. The U.S. is expected to end its COVID public health emergency on May 11th. Even though the emergency phase is over, the WHO says that the COVID pandemic declared in March 2020 has not yet ended. The WHO referenced recent spikes in cases across the Middle East and Southeast Asia. Well, the emergency may be over, but we're still catching some narrative spins on our stories. Narrative A comes from Al Jazeera. Lifting the global emergency label on COVID is a sign of the progress the world has achieved. While the virus still poses a threat, many regions of the world have adapted, and the pandemic has receded in these places. The situation must continue to be assessed, but as for now, it is no longer a global health emergency, and it is time to begin moving on. The Guardian brings us narrative B. COVID is not over. The virus continues to kill someone every three minutes. The ending of the global health emergency label sends a dangerous message that may cause people to become complacent. One of the worst things countries could do right now is to dismantle the programs and protection created to deal with the virus and its long-lasting effects. And we have a nerd narrative on this story. It says there's a 50% chance that COVID will be eradicated by August of 2086. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. 
Well, there you go. That was uh, we. You wanted to live in an interesting times. I think we did. I'm just glad that I can finally unmask while I'm driving in my car alone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to finally take the. Uh, what's the thing that's on the front of your car? There's like a bra that goes over your headlights. Right, right, you know, like, right. Like those like leather straps yeah. on the front. I'm going to yes. finally take that off the front of my uh, Pontiac. <laughs> that's a good idea. <laughs> Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. Russia relieves Wagner forces in Bakhmut after Prigozhin's video. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Business Insider, Newsweek, BBC News, and TASS. Yevgeny Prigozhin, head of the Russian mercenary group Wagner PMC, launched an expletive-filled video tirade at Russia's top two defense officials late on Thursday. Standing in a field of Wagner corpses he said were killed that day, he lambasted Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu and General Valery Gerasimov, tasked by Russian President Vladimir Putin to run the war. Prigozhin, whose forces for months have been leading Russia's charge in the Donetsk city of Bakhmut, blamed Shoigu and Gerasimov for the death of the men, claiming his units had ammunition shortages of 70%. He said, you animals are hanging out in expensive clubs. Your children are enjoying their lives making videos for YouTube. Referring to the dead men, he added, do you think that you are the masters of this life and that you have the right to control their lives? They came here as volunteers and are dying for you to be rolling in clover in your mahogany offices. Keep that in mind. Earlier in the day, he also criticized Russian officials who alluded to the use of nuclear weapons in response to the apparent drone attack on the Kremlin. Among them, Vacheslav Volodin, the chairman of the Russian state Duma, wrote on Telegram that we will demand the use of weapons capable of stopping and destroying Ukraine. Former Russian President Dmitry Medvedev called for the physical elimination of Zelensky and his cabal. Such responses make Moscow look like clowns, Prigozhin said. By Friday morning, Prigozhin, standing in front of Wagner forces, made a new announcement that on May 10th, he and his men would be obliged to transfer positions in the settlement of Bakhmut to units of the Russian Defense Ministry and withdraw the remains of Wagner to logistics camps to lick our wounds. Meanwhile, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov on Friday held a press conference on the Kremlin attack while in India. He said it was obviously a hostile act. We will respond not with speculations about whether or not this is a casus belli, Latin for cause for war. We will respond with concrete actions. Thank you, Scott, for the facts of that story. Our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from CNN. Russia's allegation that the U.S. had anything to do with this attack is ludicrous. The U.S. is still investigating the circumstances and has not come to any conclusion. And the establishment critical narrative comes from Off Guardian. If the Kremlin attack was genuine, it was incredibly stupid. If it was a Russian false flag, they're just as capable as anyone else of pulling off this centuries-old political maneuver. The truth is we still don't know, and it's too early to say one way or another. The pro-Russian narrative is coming from TASS. It is clear to Russia that this attack could not have happened without the knowledge of the U.S. Russia will respond with concrete actions to this act of terrorism. And we have a statistics-based nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. They say there is a 12% chance that in 2023, there will be another war with more casualties than the Russia-Ukraine war. News coming from Serbia once again as eight are dead in a second mass shooting in two days. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, CNN, Guardian, Sky News, NPR Online News, and Wise Voter. On Friday, Serbian police, after an overnight manhunt, arrested a suspect who killed at least eight people and critically wounded 14 others in a series of shootings 
south of Belgrade late on Thursday. The 21-year-old gunman, identified as Euros B, reportedly fired an automatic weapon from a moving vehicle in the village of Dubona, killing a police officer, among others. After fleeing from the scene, he is reported to have continued to shoot at civilians in the neighboring villages of Mali Orasje and Sepsin. Thursday's shooting came a day after a 13-year-old student armed with his father's handguns and two petrol bombs killed eight children and a security guard at his school in the capital. Following the country's first mass school shooting, the Serbian government announced tougher rules on gun ownership, including a two-year moratorium on new licenses and a review of existing permits. Though the country has many weapons left behind after the wars of the 1990s, mass shootings are extremely rare. The last mass shooting was in 2013 when a war veteran killed 13 people in a central Serbian village. Meanwhile, gun ownership in the country is among the highest in the world. Serbia ranks fifth behind the United States, Yemen, and New Caledonia, and tied with Montenegro, with an estimated 39 firearms per 100 people. Thanks for those sad facts, Eric. We have a narrative spin on this story from National Public Radio. Decades of armed conflicts have already created a state of permanent insecurity, economic instability, and a highly divided country, which is why Serbia's strict gun laws are not enough to curb a cultural tradition of owning guns. If guns continue to be part of celebrations, convicted war criminals continue to be glorified, and violence against minority groups continue to go unpunished, mass shootings will unfortunately become a norm sooner than later. New York Times brings us Narrative B. Thursday's shooting is a terrorist act, which has sent shockwaves through Serbia, where mass murders are rare, automatic weapons are illegal, and gun licenses are given only to people trained in handling firearms with no criminal record in the past four years. Until the government addresses the roots of the violence and the authorities offer details about the motive for the shootings, the country must stand together in shared grief. Rochelle Walensky will step down as CDC director. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, ABC News, Breitbart, and the New York Times. U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky announced Friday that she will leave the agency at the end of June, thanking President Biden for her appointment to the position in her resignation letter. During her tenure, Walensky oversaw the administration of over 670 million COVID vaccine doses and provided guidance on social distancing and mask wearing. She did not explain why she was stepping down other than that the nation is at a moment of transition as the U.S. COVID public health emergency is set to end next week. And the WHO said Friday that COVID is no longer a global emergency. Biden, who selected Walensky to lead the CDC in December 2020 to replace Trump-appointed Dr. Robert Redfield, said, We have all benefited from her service and dedication to public health, and I wish her the best in her next chapter. Her tenure didn't come without criticism, notably when she said in the spring of 2021 that fully vaccinated people could stop wearing masks before reversing course when the COVID Delta variant emerged. The agency's decision to shorten quarantine lengths also caught many off guard. Before joining the CDC, Walensky, who trained at Johns Hopkins University before joining Harvard, led the Infectious Diseases Division at Massachusetts General Hospital, where she was noted for work on healthcare policy, particularly HIV. Those were the facts and our first spin as a Democratic narrative coming from the official website of the White House. Using her expertise, courage, and leadership, Walensky saved many American lives during the unprecedented time of her tenure. She took a complex organization and geared it toward the sharp, focused goal of leading the country out of the darkness of the pandemic and into a post-COVID future. 
Every American should be grateful for Walensky's service to the American public. And the Republican narrative comes from Fox News. Walensky was an unacceptable public health leader, and the proof is shown through the wild inconsistency of messaging to Congress and the American people. After her claim that vaccinated people do not carry the virus, they do not get sick, was proven false, she defended herself by arguing that that's what the data showed at the time. This was just one of many issues, including not listening to parents, that caused deep frustration for the American people. In our next story, according to a recent U.S. labor report, 253,000 jobs have been added in April. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Associated Press, Fox News, ABC News, Yahoo Finance, and CNBC. On Friday, the U.S. Department of Labor released its monthly job report for April as the economy beat expectations by recording a 53-year low 3.4% unemployment rate with non-farm jobs increasing by 253,000, vastly outpacing the projected 180,000. The low unemployment rate, however, was partially driven by the first decrease in labor participation since November, as 43,000 people exited the workforce and weren't factored in. Wages also rose at the fastest pace since July, which could be a blow to the Federal Reserve's fight against inflation. The report also noted that the government revised job growth numbers for February and March, showing that a total of 149,000 fewer jobs were added over the last two months than were initially reported. The new totals were 248,000 and 165,000 jobs added, respectively. The business and professional services sector, which includes white-collar workers, such as attorneys, accountants, and computer engineers, saw the greatest job growth at 43,000. Healthcare also continued its fast growth, adding 40,000 new jobs. Wall Street responded positively to the report as the S&P 500 rose 1.85% and the Dow Jones Industrial Average climbed 1.65%. The market will be paying close attention to the Fed's response after it raised interest rates by 0.25% again this week. President Joe Biden applauded April's job growth and low unemployment while also warning that 780,000 Americans could be laid off if Congress doesn't raise the debt ceiling and defaults on its debt. The GOP is calling for spending cuts in negotiations to raise the limit. No surprise here, we have matching left and right narratives. Let's start with the Democratic narrative from MSNBC. The Biden economy continues to defy expectations and add jobs, culminating in the lowest unemployment rate since 1969. Fearmongers on the right have demonized the Biden administration and predicted a recession for more than a year and continue to be wrong. The economy has continued to improve and Republicans have ignored all positive developments because the numbers show the Biden economy has performed much better than Trump's. The Republican narrative comes from heritage. It takes a very simple look under the hood to see that the economy is heading down a path toward recession and that the unemployment rate fails to tell even a fraction of the story. While the Biden administration touts job growth, there are still 2 million fewer people working compared to pre-pandemic rates, as government handouts have driven so many out of the workforce entirely. This doesn't even include the persistent inflation that the Fed's 10 consecutive rate hikes haven't been able to curtail. And we have another nerd narrative. The Metaculous community predicts that there's a 62% chance that the U.S. will enter a recession before January of 2024. You know, Eric, talking about the interest rate hikes, 
my wife and I are, you know, would consider upgrading a house. Our family's growing, but we can't financially justify it. We have like a 2.9% interest rate in our current house. If we oh, got a man. new one, it'd be six something. It'd be thousands oh, of dollars more per month without factoring in the more expensive house. Right. I'd just try to stick it out for a while. I'm going to go to Home Depot, buy a few sheds, kind of tie them together. Build a couple of tree houses. You'll be good. Yeah. The days of the outhouse, <laughs> you know, we can kind of, we'll, we'll keep it old school. <laughs> President Biden signs an order to levy sanctions related to the Sudan crisis. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Washington Post, Al Arabia, CNN, and Al Monitor. U.S. President Joe Biden signed an executive order on Thursday that authorizes future sanctions against individuals involved in Sudan's current conflict, saying that the fighting that started last month between the country's military and a powerful paramilitary force must end. Biden said that his administration seeks to hold those responsible for threatening Sudan's peace, security, and stability accountable, adding that anyone who undermines Sudan's democratic transition and commits violence against civilians or other human rights abuses could also be sanctioned. However, no sanctions have been put in place as of yet, and specific details haven't been divulged. The fighting, which erupted on April 15th, has killed at least 528 people and injured nearly 4,600, according to the UN which also reported that more than 100,000 have fled to neighboring countries. The conflict stems from failed peace talks between Mohamed Hamdan Hemedi Dalgo's Rapid Support Forces, or RSF, and the leader of the Sudanese Armed Forces, or SAF, Abdel Fattah Burhan, who have been competing for power. Fighting has continued despite the multiple attempts to establish ceasefires, the latest of which took effect on Thursday and is set to expire on May 11th. All right, those are the facts. Let's take a look at the spins. The first one is a pro-establishment narrative coming from IBC Group. Biden's sanctions authorization for Sudan is a good step in ensuring the end of the fighting between the RSF and the Sudanese military and assisting the country's transition to democracy, though it may take some time before the fighting comes to an end. The most substantial threat to a permanent ceasefire is foreign intervention, for which the Biden administration will have to be vigilant. Russia's Wagner PMC could intervene on either side, which would be a serious risk for U.S. interests in the region. And we have an establishment critical narrative from the New York Times. The Biden administration was too naive regarding Sudan's warring military leaders after the 2019 overthrow of Omar al-Bashir, indirectly leading to the current fighting. Though one of the admin's foreign policy goals was to support democracy globally, it has failed in this initiative by not putting enough pressure on Tagalo and Burhan from the beginning. Sanctions might make the generals more likely to come to the negotiating table, but ultimately it's too little, too late. In our next story, Canada summons a Chinese ambassador and moles expelling diplomats. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CTV News, BBC News, ABC News, CBC and Washington Post. Canada's Foreign Minister Melanie Jolie announced on Thursday the summoning of the Chinese ambassador Kong Peiwu to assert that Ottawa will not tolerate foreign interference. This comes as she confirmed media reports that the Canadian Security Intelligence Service believes a Toronto-based Chinese diplomat has harassed conservative legislator Michael Chong and his relatives in Hong Kong. In addition to summoning the ambassador, the Canadian government is believed to be considering additional options, including expelling Chinese diplomats. Chong, who has criticized Beijing's treatment of Uyghur and other ethnic minority Muslims in the Xinjiang province, has stated that the diplomat allegedly involved in the plot should already have been told to leave Canada. Chong claimed on Thursday that a 2021 intelligence report was shared with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's top security advisor, 
contradicting comments Trudeau made a day earlier that the information was never briefed outside the agency. Allegations of Chinese interference in Canadian politics are not new. With media reports about Beijing's attempts to meddle in federal elections in 2019 and 2021 emerging in the recent weeks. All right, we have a right narrative spin on this story from MSN. Trudeau has long been advised that foreign interference was co opting Canadian politicians and officials at all levels by bribery and threats, with his government being told to join forces with regional governments and create a foreign agent registration system to curb this problem. His neglect of this issue has now become a threat to Canadian national security. The left narrative comes from the conversation. The Canadian government obviously must take measures to tackle foreign interference, but caution and moderation are needed. Policies such as registering foreign agents, backed by opposition parties, might prove to be disastrous for the civil rights of people in Canada, as those expressing establishment critical viewpoints would be treated differently than those liaising with Western foreign officials. An approach-China narrative comes from Global Times. Given that Beijing has unwaveringly opposed any country meddling in another country's domestic affairs, Claims recently made by Canadian media outlets and politicians that the Chinese Consulate General in Toronto was coercing a Canadian lawmaker are completely baseless. Once again, certain sectors of the West continue to engage in a smear campaign against the PRC to disrupt bilateral relations. New York and California announce an NFL workplace discrimination probe. Here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, NPR Online News, The Wall Street Journal, Associated Press, Reuters, and Al Jazeera. New York Attorney General Letitia James and California Attorney General Rob Bonta on Thursday announced a joint investigation into the workplace culture of the National Football League related to several accusations of racial discrimination and sexual harassment. The two Democratic attorneys general issued subpoenas on Thursday and made statements in which Bonta expressed concern about an extremely hostile and detrimental work environment at the NFL, and James vowed to hold the NFL accountable. James and Bonta cited a 2022 New York Times article alleging discrimination and retaliation for human resources complaints at the NFL. The prosecutors also pointed to several recent lawsuits accusing the NFL of making retaliatory firings and racial discrimination and sexual harassment suits filed by the employees. James led a coalition of six state attorneys general last year who wrote a letter to NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell asking the league to tackle the gender-based discrimination charges it was facing. Goodell's written response touted the league's achievements in creating a diverse workplace free of discrimination. James and Bonta also cited the well-documented history of workplace complaints made against the Washington Commanders franchise when detailing reasons for their investigation. The NFL responded in a statement, saying it would cooperate with the investigation even though it finds the allegations entirely inconsistent with the NFL's values and practices. Thank you for the facts, Scott. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from Forbes. The NFL is doing all it can to prevent discrimination and harassment while ensuring that its workforce is as diverse as possible. It expanded the so-called Rooney Rule, the requirement that teams interview at least one minority candidate for head coach openings, to require the interviewing of at least one woman for open executive slots. There are women referees and coaches, and 41.3% of the league's front office staff is female. Progress is being made, and there is no need for government intervention. And narrative B comes from the New York Times. A little bit of progress in the NFL's attempt to diversify doesn't mean the league has eliminated all forms of discrimination and harassment. And there should be a zero-tolerance policy. 
The league is still facing accusations of pervasive sexism at a workplace that operates with a boys' club mentality in addition to a multitude of lawsuits. If there's smoke, there must be fire, so these attorneys general have to dig into what's really going on. There's a cynical narrative for this story as well coming from Deadspin. Considering the raft of lawsuits and investigations the NFL has faced in recent years, it's no surprise there's another one coming down the pipe. Of course, just as the previous probes did nothing to lessen the league's popularity, this investigation probably won't affect anyone's opinion of the NFL. The league machine will continue to operate with impunity as long as the American people pump billions of dollars into it. And that money's not going to stop anytime soon. I feel like you can't turn around without seeing a, a, a legal gambling, sports gambling ad now. And I'm, the NFL is now taking a piece of all that. It is a money oh, machine, yeah, it is. for better or for worse. Yeah. In our next story, indigenous leaders demand apology and reparations from King Charles. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Telegraph, and CBS. On Friday, the eve of King Charles's coronation, 12 indigenous advocacy groups from former British colonies signed a letter demanding the new king, quote, acknowledge the horrific impacts on and legacy of genocide and colonization. The letter, whose signatories included Jamaica, Antigua and Barbuda, New Zealand, Australia, the Bahamas, Belize, and Canada, also called for the UK to begin the process of reparations. They also called for the UK to return stolen artifacts and human remains kept in museums and archives. Calls for returning artifacts come as a 2016 to 2019 joint study between the Australian National University and the British Museum found roughly 38,400 indigenous Australian objects in institutions across the UK and approximately 600 located in Ireland. Descendants of some of Britain's wealthiest slaveholders, such as King Charles' second cousin, the Earl of Harwood, have called on the UK government to apologize and atone for the country's historical links to slavery. The monarchy in April said it was cooperating with an independent investigation into its connections to slavery. All right, the BBC brings us a left narrative spin. British leaders must apologize and pay reparations for the country's brutal history. The Atlantic slave trade saw more than a million Africans forced into labor beginning around the year 1500, and the UK didn't abolish the practice until 1833. This is a matter of how the monarchy should compensate millions of indigenous peoples, not whether it should. The right narrative coming from Telegraph. The idea of any country paying reparations is absurd. If Commonwealth countries must pay money to Caribbean islands, then Norway and Sweden should pay Britons for the actions of their Viking ancestors. Instead of acting like Britain today is the Britain of 300 years ago, it's time to move on as every other generation has. Not framing within a historical context is bankrupt, woke ideology. Italy's Napoli wins its first Serie A title in 33 years. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Daily Mail, Reuters, the Associated Press, Al Jazeera, CNN, and ESPN. Italian soccer club Napoli won its first Serie A title in 33 years after its 1-1 draw at Udinese on Thursday. Having only needed a tie to secure a 16-point lead with five games left and clinch the Scudetto. Nigerian star Victor Osimhen, Napoli's leading goal scorer, knotted the game up at 1-1 early in the second half after Udinese held a 1-0 lead after a Sandy Lovric goal. Visiting Napoli fans burst into celebration after Osimhen's 22nd league goal of the season. This year's Napoli squad tied with club legend Diego Maradona's team in the history books by becoming Serie A champions with a record five matches to play. The club stadium, Stadio Maradona, was named after the Argentine legend who led Napoli to titles in 1987 and 1990. 
Back home, Napoli fans celebrated beneath a large mural of Maradona while others flew his likeness on banners and flags at his namesake venue. Napoli coach Luciano Spalletti said that Maradona's impact and legacy may have had a role in the club's championship run. Celebrations erupted throughout Naples and other parts of Italy as people partied with fireworks, flares, horns, and firecrackers, as some southern Italians viewed the soccer win as a victory in the southern spirit over the dominant north. More than 200 people were injured in the aftermath of the celebrations, with at least 203 people hospitalized for injuries such as burns, knife wounds, and asthma attacks. Police also said a 26-year-old man was shot and killed in a crowd, but his death was completely unconnected to the celebrations. Scott, thanks for the facts of that story. The first spin is narrative A, and it's coming from news in Germany. A day of celebration turned into a night of horror as scores of people wreaked havoc on the streets and throughout Naples. Police were supposed to keep order, but the hundreds of injuries and videos of people beating each other with belts show that authorities were unsuccessful. It's a shame that such calamity followed a joyous event for the people of Naples. And narrative B comes from the Manistee News Advocate. Of course, Napoli fans were excited about their club's momentous Serie A title, and reports criticizing their celebrations are inaccurate. Napoli fans celebrated in a peaceful manner, and authorities did a great job maintaining order as people celebrated. There may have been firework-related injuries, but emergency rooms were at normal capacity. Also, the tragic shooting of a man was completely unrelated to the night's festivities. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, May 6th, 2023. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.